Welcome back. My name is Rob Wong. This is the Great Date Guy, and today uh, I have a special guest. Um, she is a filmmaker, songwriter, and expert on grief. A lifelong student on growth and human <laughs> human potential. If I can remember how to pronounce my words, uh, this is Katie Strand, and today she is going to be helping us understand and process through grief. It's been a year of loss more than a year of loss um so this feels necessary and appropriate and as we're getting started here katie um i'm, I'm curious if there's anything you'd like to add to that introduction more that you want people to understand about you um that that was pretty good actually rob i would say one thing that i'm pretty perpetually seeking fun and play in in like how to make even the personal growth stuff, which is often laced with a lot of heaviness and seriousness and intensity. Like I'm always trying to like find inject play and fun into things as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really easy. I don't know how to put that on a resume though. Expert <laughs> in play. Maybe. I, I would I would hire an expert in play. I would. Um but so I, I guess then that that actually brings up a really interesting juxtaposition. We have this sense of play and joy about you, and then there's also that grief component. And do those two ever go hand in hand for you, or like how does that how does that mesh? Um, that's a really good question. Um, so just to give people a little background, you know, of course it's on my website, uh, katiestrand.com. But I lost my partner over three years ago. Um, Marcus Lovemore was his name. And um, I think play, like having, like kids don't need to be taught how to play for the most part. You know, if, if a child is not playful, it's typically because they have had some sort of trauma. And so children don't need to be taught this, but it's usually systematically um, trained out of adults for some reason. And so what I've found is that play sort of gives the levity or lightness to the intensity or the heaviness of grief. So it's sort of like, um, like food, you know, I love to cook and it's like, sometimes in a sweet dish, you need to have a little salt and sometimes in a savory dish, you need to have a little sweet. So it's like the play injected into grief is just like super necessary, you know, like, one of the things I did in the first weeks after Marcus died is I was I, like, I would, I would dance. And like, sometimes I'd cry while I was dancing, but it was still this element of playing with movement and with music and with my body, because it was like, that was a way to, to like, just not let the emotion, the emotions feel stagnant. And so they do, they do live together, you know? And one of my sort of quips is that, like I'm one of the happiest people you'll meet and I have cried boatloads of tears. Like I have cried a ton and grieved a ton, but it's like, I just had this sense and maybe for my training is in psychology. Cause like I got my master's in psychology in 2008. Like I had this sense of like this, I can't avoid this. You know, I can't not feel this intensity of this loss of this grief of my partner. And so it was like, I'm just going to go through it and having that, 
clear clarity of choice that I, I have to feel these things allowed me to say, and I'm going to go play. I'm going to go dance. I'm going to go sailing. I'm going to go like do these things that feel like play because it allowed me to experience the fullness of life instead of being stuck in how myopic and dark grief can feel. Mm. I, I had a question earlier about emotional stagnation, but I think you may have addressed it. Let me see if I fully understand it though. What I'm taking away is that as part of your process for moving through grief, there is a sense that we don't spend all of our time inside of that grief because it can be very like, like stuck and dark and there's no movement here. Yeah. And then taking the time to be in physically in motion and emotionally in motion, experiencing the range of things, you yeah. get to be alive while you still are present to the sadness, the anger, the loss. Is it like that? Yes. Absolutely. Um, and I think fear is so understandable. I was oh, so afraid of losing Marcus because he was, he was really sick for the last year of his life. But fear and like resistance are just like often hand in hand. And I think when a human is in resistance or a free fear of their own, own emotion, what they'll do to them, what that the, like they'll lose. I, I was afraid of losing my will to live. I, I was afraid that his death would take away my will to live. Mm. And um, what I realized is that it, it was different than how I thought it would be. I felt communication with him in the last 24 hours of his life when he was in a coma. I didn't expect that. I didn't, I've never thought of myself as a channel. And so that was a surprise. And I felt acceptance from him, which I'm learning from people who work in hospice is pretty common that there's this acceptance that comes with the last minutes, hours, weeks, months even of someone's terminal diagnosis that there's this this shift you know this this hospice moment where it actually their life changes because they're facing their death and they be, often become the best version of themselves because they're in this acceptance of like this is my time to like be and do all the things that I have been putting on hold because of the obligations or, or, or expectations or whatever and so what I had in that last 24 hours of his, of his body still being present, but his, he was in a coma is I felt him communicate with me and it was different than how I expected it was going to be. And so that gave me a little opening in a window of opportunity to go, maybe grief will be different than how I expected it. Maybe they'll be different. Give me a reference point to it being different than how I thought it was going to be. And so then with regard to the, the sort of getting stuck in emotion or stuck in grief, that as long as we're breathing, there's going to be some variation. But our reactive minds will tell us, I'm stuck in this and this is going to be, I'm going to feel like this forever. But it's not true because as we're breathing, there's some variation in the way we cry. There's some variation in the feelings in our body. And so tapping into that, having a practice of meditation for almost 20 years gave me a sense of, oh, okay. So there's like, it's like wax and wanes. It's like waves in the ocean. Oh, this is really fucking intense now. And then, and then it kind of subsides. And like even taking care of bodily needs is like an odd thing. Like I remember some mornings waking up and crying and just being like overwhelmed by the sense of just like, I lost my person, like he was my person, you know? And then just, just being overwhelmed by this feeling and then having this urge to pee hmm. I mean, like well 
I feel stuck in my emotions. I could just be in this bed and pee the bed. And I was like, I think I can get up. I think I can get up. And I swear to God, some days it was like my biggest accomplishment was getting out of bed to pee, you know, but like having these little moments of celebration of these little accomplishments. Like I took a shower, like I got up to pee, like letting myself have these little celebrations kept me going, you know? And some people would say, oh, take it one day at a time, you know, and they, people want to give advice because it makes them uncomfortable. So they like want to give advice about grief and how you're supposed to be, and how you're supposed to do it or not do it. Um, and I can speak more to that later because it's, it's, that's a, another weird thing about how other people expect you to be and how other people respond because people have a hard time with it. Um, but <laughs> but um, that um, it's just this really like interesting thing of just like, okay, this is different than how I expected, you know? And being able to like acknowledge that and realize that there's moments of joy and laughter and happiness in, in spite of this, you know, extreme intensity of grief and loss. Yeah. I love where you're taking this and to provide some context for those of you listening. Um, I think what we're covering off on here is how, how do we process through grief? And a, a big chunk of that process is how do I feel without reservation? What's there for me? Um, and, as, as, as you, I think as you were mentioning earlier, there's this level of like fear that gets in the way of that. What if I get lost in this? Um, and at the same time, I think that there's also this balance of if I'm holding on to an emotion, if I'm resisting it, um, for, for instance, if, if anyone's ever watched like a try not to laugh challenge, there's like you, you try not to laugh. And even holding on to that laughter and that happiness and trying to bottle it up eventually becomes like this physically painful experience and you can imagine what would happen with like sadness grief um anger frustrations uh and as we begin to clamp down on those things we create more suffering and so i think you did a beautiful job of illustrating like how do i do this in a human way and what that can look like hey some days it's a celebration for me to get up and pee and i've certainly been there as well like when things were really dark um, that's all I had the energy and bandwidth for, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, giving yourself those little wins. It's it's really big. Like, it sounds strange. Oh, and then a lot of people would tell me, take it one day at a time. I was saying this before, and I got lost. Uh, take it one day at a time, you know, and I'd be like, one day? I'd be like, I can barely, like, a moment. Like, it's moment <laughs> by moment. You know, because, like, some days I'd cry, so many times I'd lose count. And then other days it's like, I only cried twice today. Like that was amazing, you know? And I learned like all these weird, like grief tricks. Like, like I think I, one potential book or, you know, show thing I might do is like a widow's guide to grief or like a widow's guide to happiness in life. It's like, you gotta let yourself cry. You gotta cry. You gotta cry it out, like let it out. But then like put, splash some water in your face. Cause I, <laughs> I actually had like a an infected tear duct because I cried so much. Oh wow. <laughs> There's like salt or saline, you know, tears are saline, they're not just pure water. And so like I was like, you just gotta splash water in your face when you cry. And it's like, oh, that's like it saves that sort of itchy kind of feeling you get. So <laughs> and then I would just like for the most part, 
I was, I was working, you know, I was working some after he died. I worked, I worked freelance. Most of my career I've worked freelance. So it's project-based. So I worked a few different jobs and I was able to kind of keep it together when I was on the job. But once in a while, I'd excuse myself to use the bathroom. A totally acceptable thing to do is to use the bathroom while you're at work. And I would cry a little. It's like, I needed to release it, cry, and then get back to work. And it's like, in a weird way, I was sort of integrating grief, you know, like I started crying in the middle of the dance floor once when I was out dancing with my friends and the bathroom was packed. That was my go-to is just go to the bathroom, but that was like a line. So I went outside and this super friendly, beautiful, tall African-American bouncer, like kind of like saw me and saw I was upset and like kind of, kind of followed me out a little bit, but in a very respectful way. And he's like, I'm just, you know, wanted to check on you. And like, he, I think he might have worried that something happened at the club, you know, like somebody was harassing me or something. I said, yeah, I'm just grieving. I lost my partner about four weeks ago. And he goes, he goes, I'm so sorry to hear that. And he goes, would you be okay with the hug? And so I got held and hugged by this like beautiful angel bouncer fella that was <laughs> like randomly just, and this, ha this happened often. I went to a baseball game, a pro baseball game with some friends. And I had a moment where I was like, I, I felt the bubbling up of grievance. I went to the bathroom and I'm crying in the stall. And then I come out and I wash my face as I do, like forget wearing makeup when you're grieving. It's just forget about it. <laughs> like doesn't work, you know? And so I'm splashing water on my face and drying off with their paper towels. And this woman, this older woman says to me, Hey, how you doing? I said, oh, I just, you know, I would say the same thing. I, I would be honest. It was like, fuck lying about this. Fuck pretending everything's okay when you're in this intensity of like emotional experience. So I'd just be honest about it. I'd just be like, oh, I lost my partner about six months ago. And just, you know, this comes up and she looked at me, she went like this. I lost my husband too, about a year ago. I'm a widow. She goes, would you like a hug? And I was like, yeah. So we hugged in the bathroom of a twins baseball game. <laughs> so like that kind of stuff. And then it's amazing how you can connect with people just being authentic in your experience. You know, like no human goes through a life without feeling sad or grief or loss or, you know, all the like self-judgment, self-criticism, like all these things that we all have, but we often are pretending like we're not having that experience, but that's actually disconnective. And I realized that that's one of the only things we have is connection. You know, after Marcus died, it's like all the money in the world went to save his life. But I have a connection with him. Even in death, I can, I can feel him. I feel guided by him. And even though I knew I might be making it up, I was aware of that. It didn't matter. It gave me comfort. It might have been because I spent nine years with him, you know, and I kind of had a sense of like, what would he tell me to do in this situation? but I felt him energetically and that was enough for me, you know, to kind of have a sense of him being present. Even though physically his body was no longer alive, I had the sense of his energy, energetic presence, you know, with me. Mm. And, and so that sort of just gave me the sense of like, I'm the wealthiest person in the world because I get to, connect with my person after they died um and I still need to put food on my table <laughs> it often felt like a conundrum I was like fuck I feel like the wealthiest person and I oh I have to like go like make money and shit <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about here but I do, <laughs> and and two things stand out first uh 
I we, we often talk about vulnerability and why it's important on this podcast, but I think you highlight one of the the major reasons why it's such a, a beautiful, magical thing. It's um, at least for me, what I've seen is that taking a moment to be real and let my down my guard around people is what creates serendipity and those those singular once in a lifetime crystallized moments with other people. Um like you got hugged in a bathroom at a twins game. You had a <laughs> giant angel bouncer give you a hug uh, outside of a club four weeks afterwards. And yeah. I think these things, they don't happen. They can't happen unless I open myself up for those types of opportunities by saying what's actually there for me. Yeah. And then the other piece that you mentioned, we also talk about here. And, and I love that this is just like another example of it. Like so so much of, I think, what we have culturally is I need to be successful in order to feel complete or whole or like, you know, like some level of happy or confident. And ultimately, it's so far divorced from the actual feeling of of what we want. And I think I think ultimately underneath it all, and maybe this is just a me thing, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this as well. Like what what I want is is deep connection and intimacy and a sense of flow and safety with another human being. I want that sense of aliveness and no amount of success is going to give me that really long term. Um, it's, it's more like the human connections that, and it's easy to miss that now because mm. money is like, it's just kind of the solution. It's presented as the solution to so many things. Um, and I know this is a little bit off base, but yeah, if you have thoughts about that, I'd be interested. And if not, we can definitely dive back in. Yeah, um, I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, I think the thing that feels like it's rising to the surface is to clarify that vulnerability is, it feels scary. You know, it feels, it feels, it, it, it makes us feel nervous as humans and it's scary. And I've had people tell me I'm good at it and it's like, <laughs> okay like it's still uncomfortable like it still can be uncomfortable I'm just more familiar with it you know I'm more familiar with the discomfort of it so it's like okay it's, I'm being vulnerable of course Brene Brown is famous now for talking about it um and she even says she's bad at vulnerability which is so great <laughs> she's like an expert on it she teaches about it she's famous for it now with her TED talks but she's also bad at it <laughs> and I love that because it's like I don't feel good at it like I don't feel like I'm good at it but yet I've I've practiced it so then it's familiar um and one little caveat is to understand what vulnerability is it's really sharing our true self our true emotions our experience about things like some people don't have, have a hard time even knowing who they are because they've been molding themselves based on what they think other people want from them, family of origin, fa chosen family, spouse, you know, children, work, colleagues, everything, right? And so people are kind of uh, oftentimes molding and modifying. And that doesn't mean that things that appropriate are appropriate at work, um, or sorry, things that are appropriate socially may not be appropriate at work. Of course, we're going to always have some adjustments about how we show up, the language we use. That's fine. I'm not I'm not saying that that's unacceptable, but having this sort of sense of like, this is what's true for me. This is who I am, how I feel. I mean, one of the best ways, you know, to 
to get to that is through time with self in silence. So AKA meditation. And so spending time with self, having an understanding of who you are allows for this sort of acceptance of self that facilitates being vulnerable. Mm. And another important key to that is vulnerability does not mean blaming others for how you feel. So it's not, sh- not sharing how you feel, but saying, oh, I feel this way because of you, because of what you did or how, what you said or what you didn't do or what, you know, what, blah, 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 blah. that is different, you know? And so it's like, there's this real important, I think, component of vulnerability and knowing that this is like from, from me, my emotional response is often because of my thoughts. Um, one of the, my favorite teachings, so Marcus taught martial arts and was a health and nutrition expert and worked with clients. He was really good at it. He started meditating at age seven. And the truth is when I first met him, I kind of didn't believe him. (laughs) Really? Like I was like, probably once in a while you dabbled in it, but, but being with him for nine years, I was like, oh, for sure. He did. He he really did this. And um, so he found it on his own um, from a book because he wanted to be a magician and he got a book on magic and it said, if you want to be a magician, you have to master your mind. Best way to do is meditation. So he started meditating, but he was having panic attacks. He was a very smart kid, a brown skid kid in Hollywood. And so it was a little bit of an outsider because a lot of the people in his peer group were white kids because they're living in West Hollywood. Parents mixed, you know, his mom um, mixed, his dad's white uh, from Michigan. His mom's Jamaican, Portuguese, African mixed. And so he felt like an outsider, but also was really smart. So he's like, why is the world so weird? Like, why is the world so messed up? If you're a smart kid, you can kind of see that, right? And so he was having panic attacks and meditation took away his panic attacks. And so he spent so much time like with himself, you know, in silence from childhood that he was really comfortable with himself, really knew who he was. So then when I was having any of my emotional, you know, ups and downs, like we all have or whatever, especially sometimes with women, with our emotions and our our hormones and all that stuff, he just like stay grounded and present. And so that gave me this sort of feeling of like, I could just be however I was and he was gonna be present and grounded with me and accept me for who I am. And we, we had a relationship where we really were taking responsibility for our own stuff. So then when I would come to it with something that bothered me, I'd say, hey, this bothers me for this. And he'd say, oh, thank you for like letting me know, like making me aware of this. And so then he wouldn't take it on so that I wouldn't take it on. So then our arguments were clean because it was like we were both sharing what was going on for us. And then we would come to some sort of like resolution about how we could learn from it or or make an attempt to do things differently and not expect sort of like any kind of perfection because like we have patterns of behavior that don't change with one conversation or one realization often we need to kind of understand and shift and grow so i don't know if i went on a huge tangent over there but i feel like i opened the door for that so that that's actually perfect and i loved some of the points that you were making there especially around vulnerability and hey it's it's vulnerability because it's hard like it's well, and it's, it's a practice. Yeah. It's like yeah. practice. You have to keep practicing doing it and then doing it more. And knowing self, I think, is a really key piece of it. And I think that's how I got there. So I was like, Marcus really knew who he was. And so it was like, and here's the other thing about relationships that I've really come to in the last few years. Because I've, 
like, I feel like the last three and a half years, I've made a ton of mistakes, you know, like I moved and I got I rebounded in a relationship that didn't last. And I was like, that was really hard. And I was like, trying to figure out life and work in a new city. And because I was in LA, you know, Marcus, and I lived in LA before he died. Um, and I stayed there for about six months. And I moved back to Minneapolis. I'm from Minnesota originally. I grew up in Duluth. And so I made a bunch of mistakes and a bunch of missteps. But what's so interesting about it is this sort of feeling of just like, learn, forgive myself and keep moving, like keep, keep going, just keep, keep like engaging in life. And I, I, I feel like my life's pretty beautiful, but part of like knowing self is being able to forgive yourself. Cause you don't, you don't know yourself. You don't like yourself. It's actually hard to forgive yourself for your you know mistakes or perceived mistakes. Cause most things can be learned from, you know? Yeah. That I think it brings up a really great question because I think self-forgiveness and self-love comes up often in the grieving process for me at least. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing how, how did you come to get to that point? Like, what did you take on? How did you process through? If someone were listening right now, what would they be able to go home and do in order to begin that process for themselves? Oh, that's something I, so you're asking specifically about self-forgiveness? Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with forgiveness. That is a multifaceted area. I did get, I, I want to give some credit. I did get some training in this from my grad school, which is the University, University of Santa Monica. Um, private school for psychology, master's degrees, spiritual psychology. And, um, but, you know, the, the people who created that program, they didn't make this stuff up. They were, they were packaging it and learning it and teaching it with a lot of other, other people that had come before, you know, spiritual, a lot of spiritual stuff. And there's some non-attachment there too, right? Um, which is around a lot of Buddhist training. Um, but with forgiveness of self, Byron Katie also has some great work on this. I would say one of the key things is our attachment to being, being right or feeling justified in how we feel or think about something. And so forgiving ourselves for, like one of the key phrases I've taught people over the years is forgive myself for buying into the misconception or the misperception that I fucked up or that I, you know, made a mistake or that like, because oftentimes our forgiveness is around past events or past choices that cannot be changed. And so what those kinds of phrases and repeating those and feeling the feelings can do is open us up to how did that make me who I am right now? What did I learn from that? What can I learn from that now? And I think that's one of the key things of like integration of our past experiences, including traumas, so that we can be present and actually like be better, be more powerful, be more um, connective, be more loving because of those experiences instead of Hold, like holding tight to the attachment that they were wrong, that they were bad, that I was, that self was bad, that others were bad. It's like, that all is an attachment and a story when the reality is there's, you cannot change what has happened in the past. You can change your story around it. And that's, I think, where the forgiveness comes in. 
that forgiving self of like, if, even if you solidly think I made this mistake, okay, I forgive myself for making that mistake. What that often does, and when I've worked with kids, this is really beautiful too, is it goes, well, do you ever make mistakes? Like let's say someone else made a mistake and they're really upset about it. Someone hurt them. They made a mistake. And maybe it was a really big mistake, but do you ever make mistakes? Yeah, sometimes. Okay, well, can you forgive them for making a mistake? Because they, you know, they were doing something that they, in that moment, thought that was the thing they needed to do. Can you understand that when you make mistakes, maybe you can forgive yourself too. That as humans, it's part of what we do is we make mistakes. And it's funny when it, talking about working with kids, because adults need sometimes that same simplicity of it. You know, just like, when we rigidly hold on to grudges and resentment, and I know people who are doing that as adults, this is one of my big pieces of work. To just let them have the experience, you know, because nobody wants to feel like someone's trying to fix them. And of course, I, I'm here for the people in my life, especially my closest beloved friends and, and relationships. But there's an element of people needing to want to have a shift about it. If they're rigidly attached to being right, to their grudge, to their righteousness about whatever thing happened, they're going to do their life. And, it, and eventually, hopefully, they'll be able to come to finding some forgiveness and acceptance and learning from those things that they're holding on to. But there, there has to be just a little tiny sliver of them wanting it. You know, that little light through that little crack in that facade of wanting to like have a sense of forgiveness and acceptance and then the learning the growth and the integration that's i think what's possible yeah. and that's part of why i'm able to like not be in fear all the time of another partner dying like in a way because like that was so traumatic some of the widows i know they're like terrified of getting a relationship because they're like that person could die too I hate to tell you that person is going to die whether you're in relationship with them or not when they die well that's to be determined but so I, how do you, I how do you get there say, you, say that again how do you get to that point because i imagine that that's that's a big one right like anyone who's lost someone right now there's probably going to be that unconscious fear of like oh crap like what if the next person that i get close to they disappear if somebody has a way other than this, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to see, like, see the data and the evidence on it. You got to feel that fear. You got to let yourself feel that fear. And then like kind of tell the truth. Like, like kind of like I just, it's like, I feel really afraid like that you're, that I'm going to lose you too, you know? And like, I, I have a boyfriend, you know, and he was super late to something. We were going to meet up. And he was really apologetic, you know, it was work stuff. And he was communic communicating with me. So I wasn't super mad. I was a little frustrated that he was late. But he just assumed from his experience with people and women that, that I'd be like, well, I just feel like, like, he's like, what's your biggest fear? Like, is it that, you know, you can't trust me? Is it that this and that? And I was like, I'm afraid, you, I'm afraid you're going to get a car accident, you know, because you're driving late. You've been working long day and, you know, maybe you're not as sharp as you would be normally. And he was like, that hadn't even occurred to me that that would be a fear of yours. You know, he kind of thought I'd be making it like about, you know, like trust and stuff like that. And so like, I just let myself feel that, you know, and 
there's another piece that's really relevant. And this is, again, something like spending time with self and meditation and, and silence and all that stuff. Even though my, my life with Marcus was very intertwined, you know, we spent a lot of time together. We had projects together and all kinds of stuff. I didn't, and I, 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 received, I felt so much acceptance and love from him and with, you know, with us. We were very, we were very loving, you know. Um, I don't, I don't think I attached my self-worth to him and my lovability to him. Um, and so I think that's a piece of it with regard to like feeling brave or feeling willing to be in, in new relationships with that same fear of the trauma of the, of the loss happening again, is that it's like, if this person dies, it doesn't take away that I have at the core of me a sense of self, a sense of worthiness of love, of, of value. That's, that's intrinsic to me. That's not attached to a person. And so I think that's a part and the acknowledgement of that. Yeah, that's huge. Um, you've delivered so much great information here and I'm seeing that we're coming close to time. Um, so I guess first this of will all, be part one, we'll do yeah, another one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's so much great information that you're just, and, and you're sharing, it's phenomenal. And, and I guess in closing, I'm curious if there was one, if there was one thing that, if there was someone listening out there and they had to take your next piece of advice on how to get over loss and grief, and you're like, you got to do this one thing, they had to take it, what would you tell them to do? Stay curious. Stay curious. Like use your curiosity. We all have it. We all have it. It's part of how we are as humans. And use your curiosity to lean in and engage with your own experience. Maybe that looks like, I'm curious that when I go fishing or when I go for a run in the morning, grief doesn't feel as heavy. Or when I go for a walk with a friend, I'm able to feel more alive. Or I cry when I sit on the floor because I'm feeling so much grief, that that feels more stable than when I sit on a chair or on my bed. Like be curious about yourself and your experience. The subtext of that is it'll put you in a mode, it'll put a human in a mode of observing their own experience. And that gives us just a little bit of perspective from being immersed in it to the point where we feel lost. And so my, my best advice and potential podcast title is stay curious. <laughs> stay curious. Wow. That was extremely moving and powerful to hear. Um, and from listening to you speak, it's really clear the level of work that you've put in here, the degree of mastery and the, the amount of curiosity and exploration that you've brought to this. So I'm really grateful that you're here and that you've shared all of this. And if you're still here at the end, I'm grateful that you've stuck around and listened. And if you got something from this, I would encourage you to reach out 
to Katie, if you want to connect, if you want to have a conversation about this, if she resonates with you, how would they, how would they get in touch with you? What do you prefer? Uh, the best way is through my website, katiestrand.com. There's contact forms and stuff like that on there. I think that's the easiest, most consistent way. I'm on some social media, but I think that's the best through my website. They can find me and read up and see some videos and stuff. Yeah. And I'd love to hear from you and connect with you. Connection is what we all actually have. It's the only lasting currency, I think. Mm. Stunned. I, I, I lack the words to follow this up. <laughs> and I'm grateful you're here. Thank you for sharing your wisdom here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, Rob. You've, you've shared so much with me and so much wisdom and guidance and insight and vulnerability with me. So I'm very grateful to you as well. And I'm happy to be a guest on your podcast. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah. Can't wait to have you back. And uh, to the listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're going to be live again. You can catch us next Thursday, 88. I don't know why I said us. Unless, unless you're going to be in the next one too, but yeah, <laughs> you can tune in. You can tune in again next Thursday, 8 a.m. Pacific time. Thank you so much for being here. I love you, and I'll catch you then.